Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 42. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right. Well, if we haven't met yet, my name is Aaron, and I am one of the pastors here uh, at Exilic. And uh, just to you know, sort of rehash the past four months. Um, we uh, have been at four different venues over the past four and a half months. We've been at the Stewart Hotel, the Second, Mason Hall, and Martinique. And uh, we finally have a space uh, that we can call home for the next 10 years. And I am, yeah, one person. <laughs> um, so we're really excited about that. And um, while the church is not a building, but the people, if the people don't have a place and a space to meet together, like we did early on in the pandemic, uh, it can be a challenge to have community with God and community with other people. And so I want all of you to know that this space, it's for you. This main space is for our Sunday worship, it's for our communion groups. Uh, I don't know if you saw the room uh, all the way in the back, uh, our common room, uh, but it's a place for you to fellowship, eat, linger, chill. Um, Heidi actually wanted to call our uh, common room uh, Den Social, um, and I was telling her, I, I feel like half of our congregation would be confused if we said, let's meet at Den Social. Uh, but that area is a room that we're going to call uh, the common room, and I just want to give a verse uh, explaining from Acts chapter 244. And in Acts 2.44, it says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. And so we want that space to be a space where we can do life in common uh, together, where friendships can be made and forged and uh, deepened. And obviously, that area is for the kids, the vestibule area is for you to hang out. And so this space uh, is for you. Uh, but this space is not only for us. Uh, we really want to steward this space well in collaboration with other ministries, institutions, and organizations because, quite frankly, our church is not big enough to reach our entire city. It's going to take the entire body of Christ to reach our city. And so we want to steward this space well in collaboration with other ministries. And next week... I'll talk about um, some of the things that we need to do if we're really serious about seeing a citywide movement of the gospel take place. 
Okay, I'll talk about seven things, you know, meeting uh, mercy and justice needs, collaborating with other ministries, uh, having a robust faith and work initiative, making the city a sustainable place to live. I'll talk about some of those things. Uh, but for today, I just want to talk about one additional thing that we need to do if we are serious about seeing a citywide movement of the gospel take place. And that is this. If we're really serious about this, what we need to see is the body of Christ growing at a more rapid rate than New York City. Okay. Now, this ties in really well uh, with our DNA series, which consists of three things, our name, our mission, and our vision. Last week, Dr. Harvey talked about our unique name. This week, I want to talk about our mission, which is to inspire thinkers to believe and to inspire believers to think and to quantify our mission. What we need to see is the body of Christ growing at a more rapid rate uh, than our city is growing. So we need to see it go from 1% to 3% to 5% to 7% to 10% uh, in our city. And to, to help make this a little bit more tangible, the borough of Manhattan increases about 2,000 people per year. So if we're really serious about seeing a citywide movement of the gospel take place, what that means is that we need to see at least 2,001 people coming to a saving faith a year. If we're only seeing one person, one skeptic becoming a Christian per year, we're never going to see a citywide movement of the gospel take place. So we need to see it growing at a more rapid rate uh, than our city is growing. And while pastors and ministry leaders, uh, churches and organizations are going to be instrumental for this happening, the most important piece for this puzzle is actually you. And so I want to just talk about two things today. The challenge of filling our city with the gospel. And secondly, I want to just talk about the privilege of filling our city with the gospel. Okay. So take a look with me at verse uh, 27 and 28. And it says, The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. So one of the challenges for the earliest Christians filling Jerusalem with the gospel was the fact that it was forbidden to do so. And interestingly enough, it was not forbidden by a secular communist government so much as it was forbidden by religious leaders, particularly the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was basically a group of religious leaders or some kind of council or religious parliament with leaders in like fancy robes and garments. And they were giving strict orders to the earliest Christians not to talk about this faith. And one of the things that I find very interesting about this verse is that one of the people that was probably a part of the Sanhedrin telling Christians not to talk about Jesus was, interestingly enough, probably the Apostle Paul, who became the greatest communicator of our faith and actually wrote half the New Testament. And here's why I'm saying this. In Acts 26, 9 through 10, Paul, as he looks back at his former life, he says this, I, too, was convinced that I ought to do 
all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. You can't cast a vote unless you're a part of some kind of council or some kind of parliament. And so the reason why the Sanhedrin was forbidding uh, the earliest Christians from filling the gospel with uh, the news about Jesus was because it was actually taking place. There was some kind of city-wide movement that was taking place. It was spreading like gangrene everywhere. And you know what? That is my prayer also for our city, that we would see the gospel fill New York City just like it did Jerusalem once once ago. Prior to the pandemic, the borough of Manhattan was 5% Christian. And so if we want to fill the gospel with New York City, in Manhattan and New York City, we want to see it go from 5% to 6% to 7% to 8%. And the fact that the gospel was filling Jerusalem greatly upset the leaders. And so the question is this, why were they so upset about this idea of a man that had already died? Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Well, in the late 80s, uh, there was a political scientist from Harvard named Joseph Nye, who famously coined uh, the phrases hard power and soft power, if we can put that up. Hard power is when you're coercing and influencing people in militaristic ways, tanks, missiles, guns. Soft power, however, is when you're trying to influence and shape people, not in militaristic ways, but with ideas. Now, you might think that soft power is not as powerful as hard power, but soft power is actually even more powerful than hard power because soft power has the ability to cross borders and boundaries far more easily than tanks and missiles can. So let me give you uh, a few examples of soft power. One of the interesting phenomenons for the past 10, 15 years uh, has been the exporting of Korean culture throughout the world. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, You know what the largest army in the world is? You know, don't you? It's not North Korea. It's BTS, okay? My friend pays $39 a month to be a part of this army so she can get tickets earlier than everyone else. When she found out that they would be temporarily disbanded because they would all have to go to the military for a year and a half, she literally cried because she was thinking to herself, how are they gonna be able to handle the army? You know, they're so delicate and fragile. She literally cried. You know how old she is? 40. (laughs) My daughters. Six and four on a weekly basis are asking Alexa to play Dynamite or Blackpink. When you see black people, white people, Latinos, Asians, all singing butter, that is a form of soft power. Major, major platform. A major power where they're exporting Korean music and culture into the world. I'll give you another example. Uh, recently, Pastor Gene has been texting me nonstop uh, to watch some show called Singles Inferno Season 2. Okay, and I was like, bro, I, 
I only have time to watch important documentaries about hard power and soft power. Okay, I can't watch Singles Inferno. But he was like, dude, Singles Inferno was ranked number four internationally. The biggest audience, not in Asia, but Europe and South America. What is that other than a form of soft power where there's an exporting of Korean dating culture, humor, and food? Did you know that in Australia, there are actually codes and regulations that require Australian networks to have a minimum amount of Australian content? Do you know why? Because if they don't, they will be swallowed up by American content. Our justice issues become their justice issues, and their local justice issues get swallowed up by our issues, because that is how dominant we are because of Hollywood and media. That is a form of what? Western supremacy, American supremacy, Korean supremacy. So you can begin to see how powerful soft power can really be. And it can be used either for the flourishing of humanity or it can be used to actually threaten humanity. So one of the things that I find very interesting about Genesis chapter three, with this introduction of the serpent, and every time I read Genesis, I learn something new, by the way. But here is a serpent, a snake, and it doesn't use its hard power, venom. It's a snake that doesn't use venom, but it's a snake that uses soft power. Did God really say that you can't eat the fruit. And he plants an idea, a thought, into Adam and Eve. Did God really say that? Can he really be trusted? Is his word really good? When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, did the devil bring a legion of demons to attack him through militaristic ways? No. It was soft power. If you do this, if you jump off this, or if you make this, I'll give whatever you want to you which is a form of soft power. Now, let me bring this back to you. If this is the way that the devil tempted Adam and Eve and even Jesus himself with soft power, what makes you think that he won't do the exact same thing with you? On a day-to-day -day basis, you following Jesus, you know, whatever's happening in North Korea on a day-to-day -day level is never gonna affect your discipleship and following Jesus. But you know what will? Soft power. And to make this a little bit more visual, I, wanna, I want you to think about uh, thought bubbles for a moment. And so here's a picture of thought bubbles. And I want you to imagine that each of these thought bubbles represents a form of soft power. Okay? One bubble is talking about identity formation. Another bubble is talking about freedom. Another bubble is saying what gadgets you should buy to be cool. Another bubble is saying what kind of clothes you should wear to be accepted. Another bubble is talking about uh, sex ethics. Another bubble is talking about money and power. And so as you begin to see all of these thought bubbles that are taking place in our city, you begin to realize that this is a heavily contested space where some ideas are harmonious with others, whereas other ideas begin to clash with others. Now, here is the challenge of filling our gospel, our, the gospel that we believe in, into our city. The challenge is this. What we believe is truth about Jesus of Nazareth is just one other thought bubble amongst hundreds, if not 
thousands of other bubbles uh, that are taking place in our city. And so the question is, how do we know which one to believe in? Barack Obama was interviewed on David Letterman's show, My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. And Obama says this, one of the biggest challenges that we have to our democracy is the degree to which we do not share a common baseline of facts. We are operating in completely different information universes. If you watch Fox News, you are living on a different planet than you are if you, you know, listen to NPR. Now the fact that we do not share a common baseline of facts, not only is a threat to our democracy, but it also imposes a incredible challenge for us to fill our city uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It makes it a very difficult challenge. But uh, the naive optimist in me thinks that whenever there's a challenge, there are always opportunities. And I believe that after the three years of incredible existential angst that the whole world has faced, we have an incredible opportunity right now in the midst of the challenges. Dr. Harvey last week talked about happiness. You know, Yale did a class on happiness several years ago. One out of four students at Yale took that class on happiness. It was the most attended class in Yale's illustrious history. And that has to mean something. There, there's a part of us that's deeply unhappy. We live in the most anxious uh, generation in a very, very long time. We are more lonely despite our hyper-connectivity than ever before. For the first time over the past three years, according to Harvard Medical School, for the first time over the past three years, the average life expectancy has been decreasing from 79 to 78 to 77, and this year, 76. And a part of that is due to COVID, but that's not the only part. Loneliness is as deadly as smoking 15 cigarettes per day and obesity. And economists will tell you when the average uh, lifespan is decreasing, there's something happening with the quality of life uh, here in the States and around the world. And this is why I say we have an incredible opportunity to give something that can actually bring life to people. Now, you might be thinking, well, I think Christianity is a form of soft power that can actually hurt people, not help people. And this is what people like Friedrich Nietzsche thought as well. Nietzsche grew up in a very, uh, very pietistic Christian environment. And by the way, there's a difference between pietism and piety. But he grew up in a very pietist, pietistic, legalistic background. And because of that, he rejected Christianity. He actually saw it as threatening and he saw his nihilism and atheism as salvation. But when you take a look at the family life that Nietzsche grew up in, it was a bastardized form of Christianity. It was not authentic Christianity. And so instead of looking to someone like Nietzsche to see what Christianity is like, I want you to look at the earliest followers of Jesus themselves, those who were the closest to Jesus time-wise. And here's what it says uh, in verse 40 and 41. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. 
Now, oftentimes when we read passages like this, we gloss over the word flogged. But another way of translating that word is skinned. They were skinned alive. They were whipped so harshly that their flesh hung off their bones like an accordion. Now, if there was anyone that could have said, this is a form of soft power that will threaten my life, and I want nothing to do with it. If there was anyone that could have said that, it was the apostles. And yet, when you read this text, how did they respond to their lynching? Rejoicing. And there is a big difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is always tethered to your circumstances. Fat bonus, traveling the world, go on a date. Joy doesn't care about circumstances. It doesn't care at all. And that's how they were able to have that joy. And why were they able to have such indescribable joy uh, in the midst of what they were facing? It's because they, were, they felt like they were actually worthy. This like authenticated their faith. You know, last night I asked my wife, um, can you give me some examples where people feel kind of worthy? Like just like normal people like us. And she said, you know, for me, and I think for other people, we count ourselves worthy whenever someone comes up to us and they say, hey, can we meet up for coffee or dinner? I want to ask your professional opinion about something. Or I want to ask your personal opinion about something. When someone comes up to you like that, you feel a little bit worthy, right? Because they, they value you as a thought leader of something. Here, the apostles are not they don't think of themselves as worthy because of uh, someone approaching them about you know, professional life. But they consider themselves worthy because they actually were able to suffer for Jesus' name. And the reason why they were able to have this kind of moxie and gravitas is because when they looked at the cross and they saw a man hanging on the cross, they realized that as he hung on the cross, he said this to them. You are worthy. You're worth it. I will do this for you. And when that coin finally dropped, they're like, he's worth it too. And so as a result, uh, in verse 29 and 31, and I, I want to just fixate on verse 30 if I can. It says this, uh, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. The Sanhedrin was so upset because the apostles were always blaming them. And some of them may have not had anything to do with his mistrial or death, but they were upset. But the truth of the matter is Jesus not only, Jesus not only died because of their sins, but he also died because of our sins. There's a song that we sometimes sing called uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, and one of the verses says this, Behold the man upon a cross. I'm not sure if we have, there it is. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. But it wasn't only your sin that held him there on the cross, but it was his love for you as well. Why? Because you're worth it. You were worth it. And when that coin dropped, it was hard for the apostles not to share their faith. And so in verse 42, it says, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, 
they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Sharing their faith was not something that they had to do. It's something that they wanted to do. You know, uh, as a pastor, we do a lot of counseling, and some are serious and intense, but there is one kind of counseling that always brings a smile to my face, and it's always about uh, whenever it's about love. And so people come up to me and say, hey, you know, I'm kind of interested in so-and-so. Like, what do you think? Or other people have been dating, you know, someone for a while, and they're like, should I pop the question? You know, like, I don't know what to do. I want you to imagine for a moment someone came up to you, and they were like, I found the one. But I don't want anyone to know who they are. And, and so you're like, but why not? And they're like, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to just, I don't want to post it on social and tell my friends and family or coworkers. And so you're like, is there something weird with them? Or like, what's going on? And, and so they're like, no, they're not weird. They're actually phenomenal. And as you begin to talk to them, you realize it's not the other person. It's actually them. They suffer from a sense of shame for whatever reason. Now imagine someone that has been dating someone, not for like a year, but for like 20 years, they've been seeing this person. But they still feel a sense of shame about them. Not because they're weird, but they're just embarrassed for no reason. How do you think that other person would feel if you were in a relationship with them and you never want to talk about them? Devastating. And you know what? That is how God feels when we're in a relationship with him and we never want to talk about him. And it's not because of him. There's something with us. So maybe we can take a, uh, a lesson uh, from my four-year-old daughter, Hayden. We were out at a restaurant once and I was telling her, Hayden, isn't this uh, omelet delicious? And she goes, but not as delicious as Jesus. Like, out loud to everyone. And I was putting her shoes on. I was like, Hayden, are these shoes comfortable? She was like, but not as comfortable as Jesus. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Weirdo. <laughs> but you know what? But you know what? I never want to snuff that sense of love that she has. I never want her to feel a sense of shame. And yes, does she... Could she have more urban sensibility, more prudence and discernment? Should she learn how to, you know, talk about hard power and soft power when she, you know, talks to others about our faith? Probably. But you know what? I really admire her courage and her authenticity about who she really is as a follower of Jesus. And if we're going to see the gospel fill our city, that is the kind of men and women we need to be. And that is, that is what happened in Jerusalem. That's my prayer for our city too. But it's going to take the entire body of Christ, especially you, to help with that. Let's pray. Lord, we're uh, grateful, so, so grateful for this space. And it is our prayer uh, that the good news would not just stay in this room, but as we are sent out into the world, Monday through Friday, that we would carry this good news with us to fill our city and to have it overflow to the rest of the country and the world. In your name I pray, amen.
We're going to transition now to a uh, time of offering. Um, before we do that, we'd like to prep our hearts with a liturgy, and then there'll be some directions on how to give. So church, let's say this all together. Heavenly Father, you have made us the richest of people through Christ our Lord, yet we often live as if we are poor and without hope. Greed, envy, jealousy, and fear run rampant in our hearts when we have forgotten about the riches of our inheritance. Reorient us to the way of the cross, change the way we think about money, that it may no longer be something we save or spend, but rather a gift from you that we steward. In the name of Jesus, your Son, and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. 